Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's episode is brought to you by DaVinci Virtual. DaVinci Virtual provides awesome support solutions for mobile entrepreneurs. They level the playing field for your company so you can achieve maximum potential with minimum overhead. DaVinci Virtual offers friendly live receptionist services, killer business addresses, and fully loaded meeting spaces anywhere you need them. DaVinci helps entrepreneurs become something bigger. Give your business the powerful image and support it deserves so you can focus on your talents and grow it. Get a risk-free trial right now at davincivirtual.com slash smart and make it happen. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp, and thank you for joining me today. Hopefully you're opening your mind for a new subject, one that you've probably heard of, but perhaps don't know a ton about. Or if you do know a lot about it, that's usually because it has impacted your life, either through your own experiences or somebody close to you. Today we're talking about depression. And it is a very serious topic, but it's one that more people need to understand. There's a chance that someone you know is affected by depression or a similar disorder such as anxiety, OCD. And we cover all of these today, but primarily we're looking at depression. Depression affects approximately 1 in 10 Americans. Over 9 million American adults suffer from clinical depression each year. And it's likely to be higher than that, actually, since depression commonly remains undiagnosed and untreated in a large percentage of the U.S. So today we're interviewing Alex Korb. Alex has his Ph.D. in neuroscience. He is a neuroscientist as well as a writer. He's the author of The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression, One Small Change at a Time. And he's studied the brain for over 15 years. He has a blog on psychology today that's pretty cool. It's called Prefrontal Nudity, Your Brain Exposed. We link to it at smartpeoplepodcast.com, and it really breaks down a lot of really cool brain articles. It puts the brain in common speak. And I know we all love that stuff. And so that's why I, I really want to talk to Alex. I mean, to understand depression more, to understand what what happens. We've evolved over millions of years. Why do we still have this glitch, if you will? And I think the answer he gave was something I really enjoyed. We talk about that in this episode. I also want to learn about this upward spiral. 
How do you make this one small change at a time? Because all of us over the course of our lives want to be happier. Okay, we have those moments where we're down and that's not necessarily depression, but are there things that could impact us in the positive? How do we just move towards a happier life knowing how the brain works? I don't really want to learn just topical stuff. I want to learn it from somebody who studies the inner workings of the brain and can give me the science behind it. So I'm going to turn it over here to Alex in a minute. Thank you all so much again for being part of the Smart People podcast community. I urge you that if you want to kind of be in the loop a little bit more, we've been active with newsletters recently. We send out highlights, resources, things we found on the internet, things we've learned from our guests that we might not kind of talk about and we got more ideas on the way. So if you want that, sign up for the newsletter. Go to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Scroll all the way down. And on the bottom right-hand side, there's a gray box that says, Want Awesome Stuff? Question mark. Sign in there, submit, and you're on it. Here it is, our interview with Alex Korb. All right, Alex. Well, thank you so much for being on the show it is, as we were kind of just talking about, one of my favorite topics. I hope that's not morose, but not just depression, but just the brain and how miraculous it is and how much we're learning on a daily basis. So I can't wait to jump into this. And again, thanks for being on. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start off from the beginning. First of all, you have this this new book out. It's called The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression One Small Change at a Time. And I know that there's kind of a powerful story behind it all that made you decide to, to get into neuroscience and to become a PhD or to, to get your PhD, which takes, I don't even, way longer than I have to, to ever dedicate to anything. <laughs> so yeah. um, tell me about kind of the beginnings there and, and what triggered this, uh, this passion. Um, well, I mean, I'd always, always been interested in neuroscience and uh, I, I majored in neuroscience in undergrad, actually. Um, though I'm, I'm really sort of indecisive in a lot of, uh, a lot of my life. So it wasn't really an active decision. It was just seemed like interesting classes and I didn't really know what else to do. And, uh, and then after I graduated, I had no idea what I was doing with my life. And I figured, well, I majored in neuroscience. I guess I should work in a lab. So, you know, I've been doing neuroscience for a while. Um, but I, I hadn't really decided on, on a career, and uh, back in 2003, uh, I'd been working at, at UCLA in the lab for a year or so, and I started coaching the newly formed UCLA Women's Ultimate Frisbee team. And this was quickly like one of the best things I'd ever done in my life. And uh, one of the girls really stood out to me, uh, though. Uh, she was sort of uh, a paradox because... She was really athletic uh, and really enthusiastic about it, and she had a great sense of humor, though um, I think a lot of that was I, I make a lot of terrible jokes and puns, and she would laugh at them and say that they reminded her of her dad. But I was sort of confused by her because even though she was so athletic, she would often come up to me halfway through practice and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling kind of sick. I'm just going to sit out for the rest. And she would go sit off by herself. Uh, and it was, I didn't really understand it because she seemed fine and she would miss practice a lot and say, Oh, you know, she'd been sick. And it wasn't until several months later that I found out that she, uh, suffered from severe depression. And that was just her way of, of describing what she was going through. Cause it's, it's really difficult, you know, to say, Oh, I just, you know, I don't have any energy and motivation and like everything just feels too difficult. And that, that was really my first, you know, direct uh, experience with, you know, someone suffering from severe depression. And I uh, convinced her to, you know, that it was good for her to come out to ultimate practice more because it's great to be around, you know, people and do exercise and be in the sunlight. And these are all the things that we know affect um, the brain and help, help with depression. Uh, and she agreed. And, you know, she was, she came out for uh, the rest of the season and she was a great member of the team. But unfortunately her, um, her sophomore year um, at the, uh, uh, at the start of her sophomore year, she ended up committing suicide. Um, and it was, it was really devastating. And, 
it really made me start to question like, what was I really doing with the, you know, with my life and what, what was I actually doing with this neuroscience? Um, and I, I just really wanted to understand what she was going through and how to help people like her. And, uh, so I decided to go, go get a PhD, uh, in neuroscience. Earlier today, actually, I was doing another interview with a guy who's an entrepreneur and he said, he, he, he kind of explained what you were just talking about, something that's happened to me, which is we oftentimes kind of cruise along in life for the first at least 18 years, sometimes 20, maybe 50, until there's a moment that forces us to say, what are we really here for? Mm -hmm. And it's like, depending on your life, hopefully there, there's a couple of things. Either you get it without that big, scary moment which doesn't happen very often. You get it early and you survive it or you get it too late. And you, you know, and it just sounds like this was that moment for you. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I, I think I'd had those questions sort of swirling up in me, uh, all along. Uh, I mean, I, I tend towards, uh, certain depressive tendencies. I'm not, not sure if I ever really qualified as to clinical depression or not, but that sort of thing had already always interested me. But I always had that sort of a problem with uh, indecisiveness or, or planning and really something needed to, um, you know, I didn't have anything that kicked me into into action. And, and it's interesting sort of that you say that because like that's really goes into a lot of what we know about the prefrontal cortex and how it controls willful action and motivation. And, you know, these sorts of, of clarifying events can help us start to, to shape our goals. Um, and once we have more clarified goals and then actually changes our, our brain's response to, uh, the world and how it, how it perceives the world. And it, it becomes more effective at, you know, organizing all of our, our resources towards, towards achieving something. And, and once we start, you know, moving towards a direction with purpose, you know, we become more effective. We become happier as well. I can't wait to talk about goal setting, actually. That's one that's also been on my mind a lot recently. So we will get into that. But first, I wanted to, you mentioned you might have some depressive tendencies, although maybe not clinical. Um, I know the listeners know kind of I've dealt with some anxiety issues in the past. And once I, you know, told more people about it, it's it's fairly common, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not at a, at a clinical level, but definitely where it's going to affect your life. Do you think in doing your research, has this always been around or is it a new thing or has it been around and now we're just finally talking about it? What do you, what, and, and I'm talking specifically in terms of, I guess, these anxiety disorders or clinical, I, I don't know actually the exact term, but psychological disorders perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they've been around uh, for a long time, I think largely because the way the human brain is designed is that anxiety and depression are just sort of natural byproducts of uh, the interaction of, of brain circuits that we all have. And uh, some people are fortunate to, you know, not, you know, have, have the tuning of their, you know, certain circuits, not get them stuck uh, in anxiety or depression, but, you know, some people aren't so lucky. And, Depression and anxiety have been around for a long time. I think, uh, you know, they're just a natural part of being human. And, you know, we've diagnosed them more recently. We've become more aware of them. And they may become being expressed in different ways because the challenges that we face in life now are, are so much different than, you know, even 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. But uh, it, it's I don't think the under, underlying... Uh, disorders have really changed that much. Mm. Also that we've recently started to understand them a little bit more, I think. But when I, when I think about it, I go, okay, the human body is pretty finely tuned. It's had millions of years. Why have this glitch? Like why have this thing, you know, I think of say Robin Williams, you mm -hmm. know, such a happy guy, at least on the outside, such a funny guy and has a family yet, how is that uh, evolutionarily just good, I guess, to have this malfunction where you just, you know what, I don't want to be here anymore. Right. 
Yeah, I know. It, it seems so strange of like, well, how haven't we evolved past this in, in millions of years of evolution? And uh, I think it's important to recognize it sort of centers around the, the word you used. Why, why have this glitch? You know, because you can either think of it as a glitch or a feature. And it's sort of like, well, that doesn't make sense how it could be a feature. But I don't think things are as easily separable as that. Uh, for example, you know, a Ferrari, you could say, oh, it has such great handling and, and such great acceleration. Oh, but it comes with this terrible glitch of uh, bad gas mileage. And you could just say, well, uh, why can't I have all those things and have good gas mileage? Why is there that terrible glitch? And it's really the things that make it so fun to drive the acceleration, the big engine are the things uh, that make it have bad gas mileage. And so a lot of the qualities uh, that make the human brain so unique and so powerful are the same qualities that give it the tendency to get stuck in these certain patterns of depression. Hmm. I, you know, tell me if I'm completely wrong, but what that reminds me of is sometimes I'll talk to my friends and like my brother, for example, he's super even keel. I don't think if the scale is one to 10, you know, depressed to like off the charts happy, I think he lives between a four and a six. And sometimes I'm like, oh, that's so nice because you never hit the lows. But then I'll talk to my friends about, yeah, but do you hit those extreme highs? Yeah. And so I almost get this thought that like, okay, we if the brain didn't have this quote-unquote glitch, which I'm calling it, whatever, you could live in this, this existence, but you might not ever feel the heights of emotion such as love or excitement that kind of offset the depression and anxiety. Yeah, and, and really the emotions that we experience are all sort of in contrast to each other. You know, the more capable you are of experiencing despair, uh, you know, the, the more you can experience joy. And actually some, some, of, some people who live in a more narrow band of emotions, uh, you know, that could just be their, their natural inclination. But sometimes it's actually a defense mechanism. So sort of their, their brain has gone through this, this uh, process of recognizing that, oh, you know, pain and despair and loss and disappointment are too difficult to go through. So I'm just going to blunt that out of, of my end of the spectrum. But the problem with that is you, you end up losing the positive emotions as well. So that's one of the things that um, sort of characterizes depression sometimes. It's, it's not so much that people are sad all the time. Often people with depression just feel sort of an emptiness where emotion should be. They're like, oh, I should, you know, I'm, I'm graduating college. I should be excited about this, but I'm, I'm not. Or like i my girlfriend is really in love with me and this should make me happy, but it doesn't. Um, and it's really sort of a, a defense mechanism. You know, you, you mentioned something earlier that hung with me and it was this idea of being stuck in a state of depression and that feeling of being stuck. What is it about, say, depression or anxiety disorders that you can define due to being stuck? I like using that term stuck because um, so depression is a very stable state. Like it, it doesn't just get you down. It keeps you down, which means that like your brain tends to think and act in ways that keep you depressed. Like exercise would help you, but you don't feel like exercising. Get a good, getting a good night's sleep would help, uh, but you've got insomnia. And so that's, there's really this, uh, this downward pressure. Uh, I like to think of, you know, your mood is like a, a marble sitting in the bottom of a bowl and whichever way you push it, the tendencies of your brain just cause to cause it to sink back down to the middle. And, and depression is this like force, like gravity that's sort of pulling your mood back down. And you really need some, some means of, of generating force in the opposite direction. Uh, and that's really where I, I came upon the idea of the, the upward spiral that you really using all these different types of little forces, you can, you can get your brain, uh, unstuck. I definitely want to go into that. Actually, right before that, I, while I have you on and I'm fascinated as I know many of the listeners are, let's get into a little bit of the science behind, I guess the brain overall, I don't want to just focus on depression, but 
what is happening in these um, in these instances where you know we we get depressed, we get anxious, we have panic attacks, we you know have OCD. Are those similar? And and kind of what is it? Well, it, it's actually very difficult to find what is depression in the brain because there's no there's no EEG or MRI or, or blood test or anything that you could uh, do on an individual that would diagnose them as having depression. Yes, there are, are certain tendencies. Like, oh, people with depressions tend to have uh, higher reactivity in the amygdala and or they have, you know, lower activity in uh, or they have lower, you know, serotonin levels. Uh, but these um, these don't define every single person with depression. And it's really the, the dynamic interaction of uh, all these different brain circuits that contribute uh, to this pattern of depressed activity or anxious activity. Um, and if I could go back for a second to talk about what it means to be stuck, uh, it's like a traffic jam. Like in a traffic jam, you could just say, well, why don't all the cars in front of me just start driving faster? And, oh, well, because the cars in front of them aren't, oh, well, why don't all the cars in front of them start driving faster? And it's not that any one car needs to start driving faster. It's that, it's that there's the interaction of all these cars and there's too many cars and they just sort of get in each other's way and it, it gets stuck in a certain pattern. It's how nonlinear, it's just a feature of nonlinear dynamic systems uh, like, you know, traffic or the stock market or the weather, like the brain. Uh, and so we have uh, in the brain all these competing and interacting and collaborating circuits and uh, that includes the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system and some other connected areas like the, uh, the insula and the, um, the striatum. And the way these uh, areas interact through you know, various neurotransmitters, uh, such as serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, they, they just get stuck in this certain pattern of activity. And that, that includes, you know, with anxiety... Uh, you know, racing thoughts or uh, worrying or just a sense of dread. And then that influences those other circuits in ways that uh, that keeps perpetuating that. Now for a quick break from our sponsor. Smart People Podcast is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts the same experts who launched the index fund revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages over $2 billion, with a B, dollars in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit wealthfront.com slash smart people to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. The thing I always think about is how do I... It's not how do I know, but... How much do you think we know when it comes to this stuff? Because if you look, say, 50, 100, 200 years ago, I don't know the science. I'm sure you do. But I know we were shocking people's brain and probably, you know, bloodletting and who knows what. <laughs> and, and I just imagine that 200 years from now, they're going to be like, oh, my God, they thought we could give them a SSRI drug or something and fix them. And I just yeah. wonder on that scale, where do you think we are? Uh, yeah, well, well, first of all, I just wanted to jump in there about, you know, shocking people's brains. Uh, I have a friend who's a, uh, a psychiatrist and he, uh, focuses a lot on electroconvulsive therapy, um, ECT. 
which is what people call, you know, used to call electroshock therapy. And that, you know, we sort of think of as barbaric, like, oh, that's what, you know, they did in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And that's what uh, psychiatrists used to do in the 50s. Uh, but in fact, uh, that has proven to be one of the most effective treatments for uh, treatment-resistant depression. And, you know, we can do it in a much more humane way now where we, you know, sedate the person. They don't really uh, experience any pain. And and that has actually persisted as one of the most uh, effective treatments. Wow. So, I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, and, and we don't really uh, have a full understanding of why it works. Um, I think in, you know, a long time from now, we'll have a much better understanding of depression because I think right now we have a too simplistic view of what's going on. And I don't think that, you know, having a single drug will ever be a cure for depression. I think, you know, in the last like 40 years, we've had drugs that sort of target the same system, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and our, our drugs haven't gotten really more that much more effective in the last, you know, 40 years. They've just, they've gotten better at having fewer side effects and being safer. But really, um, you know, on average, if you give someone an antidepressant, it doesn't really matter that much what antidepressant it is, about a third of the people will get all the way better. And another third of the people will get mostly or somewhat better. And a third of the people, it won't really help at all. And I think it's just, a little too simplistic to think that we could ever cure something as complex as human depression by using just a simple pill that goes everywhere in the brain and affects all the different circuits mm. uh, throughout. That makes a lot of sense, but I feel like we also must know we're on this we're on the right track, given that we can make pretty significant progress on something as complicated as the brain when it goes haywire. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just think like when we say haywire, like uh, depression is not like other neurological diseases. Um, and yes, you could say, well, it's because it's a psychiatric disease, but um, you know, clearly there's something that's happening in the brain uh, with depression uh, but it's not happening the same way that we understand other disorders of the brain, like uh, Parkinson's. We can point to specific death of, of dopamine neurons or um, Alzheimer's, a certain buildup of, of uh, certain proteins. We don't understand depression in the same way. And I don't think depression is the same type of disorder. I think in the in the future, we will start to understand Oh, that people's uh, depression uh, is much more unique to them. We'll have better ways of of measuring their unique uh, dynamics of their own uh, neural circuits, and we can say, oh, well, this um, you know this drug will uh, be better for you, and you know this drug will be better for someone else. And we're already starting to see that, but uh, I don't think we're going to realize like, oh, it's just this. This one circuit that we need to activate mm -hmm. or uh, this one drug that we need to elevate, it's going to be different for different people. And I also think there, there are many different, what we call depression, uh, there are really many different subtypes. And I think also you can think of it like predicting the weather. Because they're both nonlinear dynamic systems, the brain and, and you know the climate, we will and have, got, we've gotten better at predicting the weather, you know, the seven-day forecast. Uh, we've gotten much better over the last few decades. We used to only be able to, you know, figure out the next day. And now with all this Doppler radar, we can figure out what's going to happen for the next four or five days or the next week or the next 10 days. And we'll get better at that. But it's not like, I, I don't think we're going to be able to say with certainty, like, oh, this treatment is definitely going to work uh, for this person. We'll get better at choosing the right treatment for them and increasing the odds that the first treatment we choose will help them. But right now, whereas it's like, you know, two thirds of the people get better, after, you know, mostly better after the first treatment, I think we'll be able to bump that up. 
but I don't think it's it's going to be as as simple as we as we treat most other medical conditions. Sure. And how much of this is do you think is due to our recent propensity, I think, to just concentrate on, well, this is a brain disease, if you will. How much of it is whole body? You know, I'm really, I just heard this statistic the other day about like something, our stomachs or our guts have the second most, I don't know, neurotransmitters in the body. I I probably just butchered that. But the point being. Yeah, serotonin, I think you have a higher concentration of serotonin in the gut than in the brain, or there are more projections, you know, 10 times more projections from the, from the gut up to the brain. There you go. And and so it's like, we don't spend a lot of time. I haven't interviewed, although I want to somebody just saying like, how does our gut affect our brain directly? You go, your brain affects your brain, you know? So what have you learned about the, the mind body connection and, and where do we stand in that realm? Uh, well, I think we're, we're starting to learn a lot more about it and it really illustrates the complexity of of depression so the the basic concept is biofeedback which is really how the brain affects the body and how the body affects the brain and how those that loop uh really communicates and that's that's one of the things that really made me think about this concept of the upward spiral which is that well we can't always change how you how you feel you can't always change your thoughts or or interact with your your brain activity directly but there are many different things that are easier to change about your life that then affect your brain activity which in turn makes uh new actions easier to access or new thoughts easier to think uh and that has a cyclical effect which then feeds back and changes your brain activity and, and further pushes along the cycle. Hmm. So things like exercise, for example, exercise can help, uh, with the digestion. It improves appetite. Exercise, uh, has all these effects on your muscles and, and lowering cortisol levels, which then feed back into the brain. Your brain's like, Oh, we have less cortisol. I must be less stressed. Uh, and that, you know, that frees up your energy resources to do other things. When you have more energy, then you're more likely to exercise that the exercise and, you know, being outside in the sunlight can then affect your circadian rhythms, which are a a set of, of body clocks throughout the, uh, the brain and, and other organs that affects all these different levels of hormone release and body temperature elevation and, and focus and reaction time. And it's very complex interaction, but when you can improve your circadian rhythms, then your sleep becomes more restful. Uh, and when your sleep is more restful then you have reduced pain and we have reduced pain, then, you know, uh, it's easier to exercise. And, you know, that all these different parts of the brain and body interact. Uh, and it's, so it's really easy to say like, Oh, this, this thing exists just in the brain or this thing just exists just in the body. But with depression, it's really an interaction of your brain and your body and your environment and the people around you and your, your actions and your interactions uh, with all of those, all those things. So given how complicated it is, where would you recommend somebody with depression start? And then I'm sure it's almost the same recommendation for somebody who isn't depressed or doesn't have clinical depression, but wants to just live a more fulfilling or happy life? Where, where should we start? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the things that um, make people feel, you know, sort of out of sorts or a little uh, down are, are sort of controlled by a lot of the same circuits that control or contribute to depression. Um, one thing, I think, is for people to manage their expectations that if you're already a happy person, it's harder to, to become happier. Like, it's not like, uh, these, all these suggestions make you happy. They just help make your, your nervous system more robust and have an appropriate emotional response. Like we're not designed as humans to be happy all the time. Uh, you should be sad. Sometimes you should be happier at other times. And 
so if you're feeling a little bit down, a lot of these things will, you know, will help that, uh, that also help depression. So to get, to answer your question, there's really about eight different areas, uh, or rather nine different areas that I, I, I like to talk about. Um, I can just list them off. Uh, the reason why I added nine is that I think understanding and acceptance of, of how you are, uh, as a person and how your own brain works is an important first step. Uh, and that, that goes into not expecting that you should be happy all the time, but the different ways to attack, uh, depression are, uh, exercise, uh, decision-making and setting goals, changing your sleep patterns and circadian rhythms. And I can go, go into a lot more detail, um, on any of these, uh, but changing habits, uh, biofeedback that I already mentioned, gratitude, uh, you know, the social support. And if those aren't enough, then professional help, uh, you know, going to see a therapist or getting prescribed an antidepressant medication, some form of neuromodulation like ECT in an extreme case or transcranial magnetic stimulation or something like that, that, um, that is another aspect of, of the upward spiral that can help break the, the pattern of depression. Yeah, and I love the the kind of visual I get when I think about the upward spiral. And there's two I want to touch on, which are habits and goals. But prior to, you mentioned the nervous system. And it's something that I I actually would like to learn a little bit more about. So say, well, first of all, could you tell us generally what that means when you say the nervous system? And then is it possible that that you can strengthen the nervous system the same way you can strengthen a muscle. So if I go do bench press for a month, my, you know, uh, pecs are going to be bigger and stronger. If I stress my body, am I going to be able to deal with more due to the effects on the nervous system? Yeah. Well, so the, the nervous system is just the set of all of the, uh, nerve cells and supporting cells in your brain. So nerve cells are called neurons. Uh, and you have a whole peripheral nervous system that is spread throughout uh, your entire body of all these different, you know, touch sensors and, and neurons that control your muscle contractions. And, and all of those are connected to the spinal cord uh, and the spinal column. And in the spinal column, that's part of the central nervous system. The spinal cord, uh, spinal column all the way uh, up through the brain is what's called the, the central nervous system. And all of those together make up the peripheral nervous system with the central nervous system is the, the nervous system in the brain. And it controls and is affected by everything that you do. Now, the brain is extremely complex, but and we don't fully understand it all. But fortunately, the, the circuits or the regions that contribute to depression are uh, a relatively small amount of the brain. Not, uh, they, they are a very uh, important and large volume of the brain, but uh, we can sort of track it down to a, a small number that's sort of easier to wrap your mind around. And uh, that sort of comes down to the uh, prefrontal cortex and its interactions with the limbic system. And then, as I said before, I mentioned before, I think a couple uh, key associated regions, the insula and the striatum. And I'm happy to go into more detail about that. But um, the way those regions interact um, are affected by the rest of your nervous system, which have input input to them, and the activity in those regions also affects the rest of your of your nervous system. So it's a two way uh, a two way street. And is there a way to beneficially stress the nervous system? Uh, yes. I mean, I think by it, it's not the analogy doesn't. Um, follow exactly the same from from strengthening a muscle though i guess it is similar because there is an ideal way to strengthen a muscle and it's to apply a certain amount of force and if you if you do too much force then you're going to actually damage the muscle and uh you know if you do different types of force you're going to it's not that you know uh low uh, repetition of low weight, you know, in your biceps, let's say one person does, you know, a uh, hundred uh, bicep curls with 10 pounds and someone else does, you know, five bicep curls with 50 pounds. It's not that one is better 
at strengthening your muscles than the other. It, it just depends strengthening them for what. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's one of the important things for the nervous system is that chronic stress and uh, large amounts of stress that's out of that are out, that is out of our control is sort of like trying to do you know weightlifting with too much weight. It's just going to cause damage to the muscle and actually make it weaker, even though you're trying to make it stronger. And as far as you know, trying to make the nervous system stronger, the real question is, well, stronger for what? If you are you know trying to be better at you know playing the violin then you know you need to play the violin and you know uh, emphasize your your small motor movements whereas if you're trying to be better at you know playing poker um you really gotta become more in tune with your gut uh and you know your emotional control and your responsiveness to to uncertainty so there there are some general uh concepts of helping the brain uh, reach its its uh, uh, peak effectiveness. And by that, I mean where it's not getting in your way as much in trying to accomplish what you're trying to do. But it's not like there's there's only one way to shape the brain because we're, we're trying to shape the brain to do different types of things. Mm, master different areas. Yeah, I get that. Now to take a moment for a message from our sponsors that help make this show free for everyone to enjoy. Do you think you'll have enough money to retire? Not necessarily. Hidden broker fees and unexpected taxes make your advisor and Uncle Sam richer while you slave away through your 70s, but not with Future Advisor. Future Advisor's Nobel Prize winning strategy and intuitive financial software ensures you get the most out of your investments so you're able to retire sooner. They've been featured in Fortune, Wall Street Journal, and Fox News, and their software is so efficient, they'll show you where your current portfolio is lacking and how to fix it completely free. Just plug in your investments and let Future Advisor take it from there. Whole thing takes about two minutes. You can make the changes yourself, or if you'd like, Future Advisor will manage your portfolio for a fraction of what your current advisor charges. I'm going to be honest, I don't have a ton of money, but I do have a little bit and a few investments. So I wanted to see how I kind of stack up. And so I I went and I took the free two-minute assessment, and it gave me a clear picture of like where I'm doing well and where I could do better. But it also lets me know if I'm on the right track. So it's nice to kind of see all my investments in one place and actually get a letter grade, A through F, on different aspects of that. If you have any type of retirement account, do what I did. Go to futureadvisor.com slash smart people and get this free portfolio analysis. Future Advisor, a report about your money and a plan for the future in under two minutes free. Go to www.futureadvisor.com slash smart people. Now back to the show. So I know we only have a few minutes left. Um, I did want to touch on the one that I've... I've seen and heard so often make a difference and and get your take on where I believe it all starts, which is changing habits. Mm -hmm. Um, What have you found is the most effective way? How does somebody go, look, I know I want to do this, right? Exercise or I don't know, eat differently or meditate. Right. What have you found behind habits? Yeah. Well, I mean, habits are such a a huge uh, part of, Uh, living an effective life and improving happiness because the habits, uh, well, I think this was in a a Buddhist saying, or maybe I read this in the Steve Jobs book that the, uh, um, for the first 30 years of life, you make your habits. And for the rest of your life, your habits make you because the habits are just the things you do when you're not thinking about what you should do. And so habits in and of themselves are not problematic. It's just, and, and really the, the part of the brain that controls habits, the striatum, doesn't actually really distinguish between good and bad habits. That's a, good and bad habits are things that are just only really referenced to the future. Something is a bad habit only because, uh, yeah, it might be good for you now, but it's not going to be good for you in the future. <laughs> the only part of the brain that really cares about the future is the prefrontal cortex. 
And so uh, that's why we often get in this dilemma where we're like, we want to do something, and that's the prefrontal cortex that has that, that desire or that goal. And then the striatum, which is controlling our habits, doesn't care about that at all. Hmm. First of all, I love looking at the fact that in our brain, this mushy blob, there's different parts with almost contrasting goals. That in and of itself is really fascinating. Right. Yeah. And, and as you say, like there's not, there's, they're contrasting goals. It's not like one is better than the other, but if you're trying to be a better violin player, for example, well, you need to train your striatum to want to get up in the morning and practice the violin. And if you haven't trained your striatum to do that, then, you know, your prefrontal cortex is going to be constantly fighting against the unconscious habits of the striatum, uh, and therefore you're not going to be uh, as effective in doing what it is you're trying to do. For me, maybe I get really excited because I like to know how something works in, mm -hmm. in order to want to change it. I, I don't deal well with like, we think if you do this, because I'm like, nah, I want to know. So right. now I can picture I have the striatum, I have the prefront prefrontal cortex, and I have mm -hmm. been in that battle. Like, I know mm -hmm. where I want to be but I right. don't do the steps to get there. How right. do I team those two up to kick ass? Okay, well, um, there's probably four, four ways um, that are really the best ways to attack that problem. And uh, they're really self-affirmation, reducing stress, increasing your self-awareness, and potentially changing your environment. Now, I guess I, I probably should have put them in a different order because increasing self-awareness is probably the... Uh, most important. Uh, and part of increasing self-awareness is just recognizing how habits are controlled in the first place. Uh, and basically, what this, the way the striatum works is uh, Pavlovian stimulus response. There is some trigger in the environment, uh, like I, you know, get up out of bed in the morning. That's the trigger, okay? And then what what do I do next? Well, uh, do I walk over into the other room and play the violin? Uh, or do I eat breakfast? Or do I sit in front of my computer and waste an hour on Facebook? Uh, these are the types of sort of unconscious uh, decisions that our striatum really controls. And if you are unhappy with that, then you really need to become aware of like, oh, what am I... What is the, the stimulus um, that, is, uh, that my, my striatum is then reacting to? And what is the, the action that I'm engaging in? And if you want to change the habit, oftentimes you can either change your environment so the stimulus is different. But I don't have a good example for that mm -hmm. in, in this violin situation. Um, but uh, Well, maybe you could put the violin closer to your bed or something right. like that. Yes, exactly. You could change you know, your, if you're in Thank you for, for providing the example. Oh, sure. If, you're, if your violin is in another room, you wake up and you see your computer. And okay, the stimulus is you see your computer, so you go over and you start playing on your computer. Actually, I have a friend who uh, was really overweight, and part of the problem was he was watching too much TV. And so, oh, he just move the TV out of the bedroom. Because, yeah, when you see the TV, you're much more likely to click on the, you know, the on button and start watching. Mm -hmm. Because for the striatum, uh, or really, this is better to think about it more generally, it's much easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. Because avoiding temptation means you are not going to interact with the trigger that's going to automatically trigger the response in the striatum because once that striatum response is triggered like oh i want to watch tv or um you walk down the the candy aisle at the supermarket as soon as you see that candy bar you're straight and oh, i want that candy bar and once that activity is triggered it's much harder for the prefrontal cortex to come in and squash that activity whereas that if that pattern of activity isn't triggered in the first place then it's much easier to decide what to do. So yeah, if you put your violin, if you take your computer and your uh, TV out of your bedroom and you put your violin there, 
then you wake up in the morning and your first thing is, oh, I see the violin, and you're just going to have more of a natural inclination to start practicing. And the way the striatum works is, yeah, the more you do a habit, the stronger it gets encoded in the brain and the stronger that interaction between that particular stimulus and the response. And therefore, the easier it is to just keep doing on an unconscious level while your your conscious mind can start worrying about other things. Right. And you know, you know what I'm thinking about as we're talking about this is the striatum doesn't get enough credit. Like, I've never heard of that. Uh-huh. Yet I've heard of, you know, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and who know I mean, probably some other things, but I never heard of the striatum. Yeah. So the striatum, you may have heard of the nucleus accumbens. Yeah. That one sounds a little more familiar. I just probably like the, couldn't pronounce it. The reward, that's the reward center of the brain where a lot of dopamine gets released. And the, the nucleus accumbens is really uh, the lower part of the striatum. And really the striatum is just a part of a larger complex of structures that includes the caudate and the putamen and all these other things that you've never heard of. But all these different structures are closely tied and connected to each other. Hmm. I want to talk about self-affirmations here for a minute because I was talking actually to a friend about this not too long ago and they were joking. There's that SNL character who was like, people like me, uh, you know, doggone it, I'm good enough or something like that. And right. so self-affirmations have a negative connotation, but you talk about their importance. And what is that and kind of how can we properly utilize them? Yeah, well, I think self-affirmation is actually a really important part of changing bad habits. And, and part of that is because when our brain is stressed, we are more likely to do our oldest habits and act out uh, our oldest coping mechanisms and everything. And that's, that's why, you know, you know, an alcoholic might be doing fine, uh, until they lose their job, uh, or until they start having a fight with their girlfriend, they were able to, to keep that old, uh, drinking habit in check until their brain was overcome with all this stress. And, and part of the problem with the way people approach, uh, changing habits is they, they get really, you know, mad at themselves, uh, or they they become really judgmental of themselves. And the problem is that with that is uh, it's just increasing the stress level in your brain, which just makes your stratum more likely to act out old habits. It's sort of like yelling at a puppy dog uh, because it's not doing what you're telling it to do. All it's going to do is then, you know, pee on the floor. Uh, it's not the, the way that we go about changing habits is, is usually not the most effective. And one of the ways uh, to help you change your habits is actually take a step back and practice some self-affirmation, some self-compassion. Instead of thinking about all the things that are wrong with you that you want to change, think about the things that you are that you love about yourself that you really appreciate about appreciate about yourself uh, or you know even just gratitude uh, for things around you and this type of thinking has been shown to to not only calm uh, the stress response but it also helps by calming the stress response helps you uh, helps the prefrontal cortex have more control over the striatum and change your habits there's actually two studies in particular, one on smoking, one on uh, eating healthier. And the, the people were, were taken into a, a room and they were divided into two groups. And one group was asked questions, you know, just random questions um, about like, you know, their opinions on things like is chocolate the best flavor of ice cream or whatever. And the self-affirmation group was asked questions that made them focus on the best parts of themselves. Like, have you ever forgiven another person when they hurt you? Or have you, you know, been considerate of another person's feelings? And, you know, the, the people did not know why they were in the study. They weren't, you know, told to repeat a mantra over and over. I am, you know, beautiful. I am wonderful. People love me. They just were asked these small questions to cause them to think a little bit more about their own positive qualities. And in the smoking study, the people who thought a little bit more about their positive qualities developed a greater intention to quit smoking. Like they were more likely to uh, pick up a, a packet on how to quit smoking as they, um, 
as they uh, left the room. And the people who uh, who were trying to eat healthier, you know, had more uh, fresh fruits and vegetables in the in the following week. It's so interesting too because I, I think so many people hear that, or or when they hear about self affirmations, they're like, "Oh, I can just think it," you know, or I can just be aware of the fact that works, and I don't actually need to do right. it. You know? Yeah, it's not. You actually need to do it because it is it is the experience of looking for things to be grateful for that actually activates certain parts of the brain and, and deactivates other parts of the brain. For example, thinking uh, about happy memories actually boosts serotonin production in a very important part of the limbic system called the anterior cingulate that communicates is really the bridge of communication between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. And, you know, I, I think it's really easy to dismiss all of these things as like, oh, it's just what you're thinking or like, oh, that's just something you're doing. But your thoughts and actions really, and your interactions with the world all have effects on the brain, the brain's activity, the brain's chemistry, and those are real effects and that is really what the upward spiral is all about because you can it's much easier to change those small actions or change those small thoughts which will in turn uh, affect uh, brain activity and chemistry in a positive way to make other other things more possible and just for the listeners here's actually i use an app called happy feed uh, and it's, it's really good. It's kind of at the end of the day, I just put in the three things that day that I'm thankful for, or that made that day great and mm -hmm. it records them. And so you can go back and look, but even more than that, you'd be surprised how you forget so much of the cool stuff that happened in a day, but you will remember any bad thing that happened. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. fascinating. And, and I'm, I'm sure that app, uh, is, you know, very useful, um, and, and I want to emphasize too that like it's not just thinking about positive things. This isn't just positive thinking, uh, but it's recognizing that that positive thinking does help you do a lot of the other things that will help with depression. Not just habits, but also gratitude. For example, in the app you just mentioned, like gratitude actually improves your sleep, and and you spend like a third of your life sleeping if you can. If, you're, if your sleep patterns are off, uh, you are much more likely to develop depression. Hmm. So, you know, thinking about some one thing that you're grateful for before you fall asleep can actually uh, help impact a huge amount of your neurochemistry. I love it. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you being on the show. This has been a fascinating conversation. I love this topic. Your book, again, is The Upward Spiral, Using Neuroscience to Reverse the Course of Depression One Small Change at a Time. And we'll go ahead and link to that on smartpeoplepodcast.com. I was wondering, I know you actually write a fantastic blog. Could you tell people where else they can find you and continue to learn about uh, neuroscience and the brain and all these great topics? Well, people can go to my blog, which is called Prefrontal Nudity. And it's on psychology today, but the best place to find it is on my uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash prefrontal blog. People can go to my website for more information about me or the upward spiral or my blog at alexcorbphd.com. Uh, that's A-L-E-X-K-O-R-B-P-H-D.com. And my Twitter handle is at prefrontal blog. Awesome. Well, and we will provide all of those links in the show notes. Alex, again, thank you so much for uh, for being on the show and uh, best of luck. And, you know, keep keep helping us figure out what's going on in our brain. Yeah. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you. All right. Have a good one. You too. See ya. Bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Alex Korb. Always fascinating to hear about the brain and just how complex it is. And then really, you know, I think everybody suffers from some sort of depression from time to time. And hearing that, you know, we can change that and reverse the course of depression using small changes one at a time is truly inspiring. To hear more about that concept, check out Alex's book, The Upward Spiral, 
You can find it at your local bookstore or on Amazon. And as always, if you do purchase it on Amazon, do it through our Amazon banner over at smartpeoplepodcast.com or use our Amazon affiliate link, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. This allows us to get a nice little cut from Amazon each month at no cost to you. It's one of the easiest ways to support the show. If you're looking for additional ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. That truly does help out the show. So thank you so much if you're going to take time out of your day to do that. If you ever want to contact Chris or I, just drop us a line at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. We love hearing from people and getting guest suggestions, so feel free to send an email our way if there's a guest that you want to hear us talk to. Stay tuned. We've got some awesome interviews coming up, and we'll see you next week. Next week.